0: Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're looking this morning at Romans 6, 1 through 14. We're in a series called A Romans Christmas. We've looked at uh, the Savior's arrival from Romans 1, and the way that, uh, that Paul describes Christ's coming into the world, the Son of God and the Son of David. We looked at how the Savior reconciles from Romans chapter 5, that Christ came into the world not just to give us a holiday, but to purchase with his own death eternal life, forgiveness, an eternal life, and reconciliation with God for all who believe in him. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, Romans chapter 6 on the topic the Savior sanctifies. Because when Christ came into the world, He didn't come merely to save us, as if that weren't enough, merely to reconcile us to God, but to actually perform a work of transformation in us, to save us from our sins to holiness, from disobedience to obedience, from unrighteousness to righteousness. And so, let's look this morning at Romans chapter 6. Beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Give thanks to the Lord for his word, and let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures. And Father, we pray that as we take up the study of this densely packed portion of scripture, That your spirit would open our hearts and our minds, our eyes and ears. Father, that we might learn what you would have us to learn from this passage. Father, we pray that you would humble us. Pray that you would change us by your spirit, by your word. For we pray it in Christ's holy name. Amen. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows you've been bad or good. So, be good for goodness sake. Now, a careful exegesis of those familiar words to Santa Claus is coming to town reveals something very interesting. That closing phrase, for goodness sake, could possibly have one of two meanings or maybe it was intended as a double entendre. First, we could take for goodness sake as an expression of emphasis, much as we might say, so be good for Pete's sake. Or we could take it rather as an expression of the inherent goodness of goodness. Be good for the sake of goodness because it is good to be good. And it's corollary, of course, it's bad to be bad. Now, I'm inclined to understand it in the first sense, that is, as an expression of emphasis. Santa is on his way. So, if you expect to do better than coals or switches, you'd better be good, for goodness sake. Well, however we take it, unfortunately for many Christians, their understanding of the doctrine of sanctification, that is, of being made more holy as Christians, often rises no higher than that. Be good, for goodness sake. You're a Christian, and Christians are supposed to be good, so for goodness sake, be good. Which might explain the very low level of true righteousness and holiness, even among professing followers of Christ. Well, we can do better than that if we're going to stand for more than just a vague sense of goodness, if we're going to live lives of true biblical righteousness, we must do better than be good for goodness sake. Moralism, which is what that is, to be good for goodness sake, does not have the power to break sin. It does not have the power to cultivate genuine heart righteousness because it's not rooted in Christ. Now, Paul actually wrote this passage that we just read in Romans 6 to address a different problem, not moralism so much as a problem of antinomianism, anti, of course, against, the Greek word nomos, law, uh, those who are against the law are basically, as it's lived out here, living apart from the law. In other words, presuming on God's grace to forgive them so they go on sinning. God's going to forgive, why not sin? Well, Paul had just explained in chapters 3 through 5 how God's grace is greater than our sin, how God justifies us in Christ, how Christ had paid for our sin through his own death. God forgives us, cleanses us of our sin. And Paul knew that that teaching of God's grace in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins, could be misunderstood. And so that's why he says in verse one, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Should we just go on sinning so that we experience more and more of God's ever-growing grace? What's his answer? By no means. Uh, the the Neo Record Standard probably translates it closest to what it actually says, although it, it, it's more of Greek than English. May it never be. Uh, the King James actually just paraphrases and says, God forbid. The answer is, is no, in the strongest terms possible. May it never be. By no means. Absolutely not. And then he goes on to explain why it does not follow that God's forgiveness and grace gives us license to sin as we please. And it has to do with our relationship to Christ. And it's that same teaching where Paul explains why as Christians we, couldn't, we, could, we can't even have that mindset. Paul goes on here to explain why it's that same teaching that helps us to understand that Christian obedience to God's Word is more, so much more, than just be good, for goodness sake. Just be good because Christians are supposed to be good people. Rather, he argues, our relationship to the risen Christ, gives us the power we need to live as new creations in Christ. Or to put it another way, just to state it simply, union with Christ results in obedience to Christ. Union with Christ results in obedience to Christ. If we wanted to sum up these verses in a nutshell, that's what Paul is saying. Well, first of all, he speaks... Uh, in these verses of our union with Christ. Now we've said, up till now, Paul has been talking about justification. That is, how a sinful human being can be right with God. Well now, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, he speaks of sanctification. That is, how we as God's people are to live, and how God is at work in us cultivating that righteousness that he wants to see in us. The difference is that justification has to do with our standing before God. It's where when you have believed in Jesus, God declares you not guilty but righteous in Christ, and you have right standing with God. You're reconciled to Him. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So justification has to do with our standing before God. Sanctification has to do with our living before God. And God working in us His righteousness changing our hearts, dealing with us in our sins, so that more and more in our daily living we come to be more and more like Jesus. And so that's what Paul is talking about here as he moves into chapter 6 and on into chapter 7 and 8. And the one inevitably follows the other. If someone is a Christian, they really is a Christian, has been justified and is right with God, their lives will be different. Their lives will change. Someone professes to be a Christian, and yet their life life is exactly like their non-Christian friends and neighbors. Then we have to say, have they really been justified to begin with? They're not the same thing, but they do go together. If you have been justified in Christ, he is at work sanctifying you as you go along. Significant difference. Justification is something God has done to you. By his grace you believed, God declares you not guilty. That's not something you and I have anything to do with other than by his grace we repented and believed. But it's a declaration on God's part regarding you and your standing before him. Sanctification, there is something for us to do. God has given us his word. He's given us prayer. He's given us worship. He's given us the sacraments. And as we participate in those things and make use of those what we call the means of grace, uh, God uses those to cultivate a heart for him in us, a heart that results in in a changed life. So you and I do cooperate with God in our sanctification by using those means God has given. That's why it's so important to worship on Sunday and be under the preaching and teaching of the word. That's why it's important on your own to be reading and meditating in, in God's word in a systematic way, and participating in the sacraments, and even fellowshipping with one another. God uses those things to cultivate holiness in us. Well, Paul's speaking here of our union with Christ. That's the amazing thing, is that as Christians, we have a union with Christ by the Holy Spirit that makes all the difference in the world, that transforms the Christian life from moralism, be good for goodness sake, to the new creation that we are in Christ. Well, in verses 3 and 4, Paul refers here to baptism. And our baptism is a sign of that union, that joining we have with Christ. Now, baptism has other meanings as well. It's certainly a sign of the washing away of sin. It's a sign of the life that the Holy Spirit has given to us, where we were dead in our sins. Now we are alive in Christ. But here, Paul uses baptism as that sign and seal of our being joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And Christians who are tempted to live loose lives, to play fast with God's grace, need to remember their baptism. And remember that that is a sign of their union with Christ. Now, that union has a couple of particular aspects that Paul talks about here. We are united with Christ. We're joined to Christ by the Spirit, first of all, in his death and burial. Look at what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, Paul refers to baptism as that outward thing, but he, again, is using it to refer to that actual baptism of Christ, that union with him. He says in verse 4, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. And then again in verse 5, he says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, verse 8, uh, he says, now, if we have died with Christ. But really, the, the key verse here is verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self was crucified with him, who's the old self, well, it's you as a son of Adam, as a daughter of Eve. It's you in your fallenness. It's not a part of you. It's who you were in your fallen condition. And Paul says that it's that. You as a sinner, you as alienated from God, rebellious toward God, was crucified and died with Christ. And so Paul says anyone who has died with Christ has been set free from sin because that death satisfies uh, death's claim and sin's claim on the sinner. If you think about somebody on death row, scheduled to be executed because of his crimes, when he is executed, the law's claim on him is over. Because at least from an earthly point of view, justice has been satisfied, the punishment has been served out, and justice no longer has a claim on him. Well, that's true with Jesus, too. Jesus, of course, died for no sin of his own, but he died bearing your sin and mine. And once he died, sins claim upon him as the bearer of those sins is over. And that's the point that Paul is making here. And we are united to Christ in his death. So that Paul could actually say in Galatians 2.20, I have died with Christ And I no longer live. Well, Paul was writing the letter. Uh, If he was dead, he was doing a pretty good job of putting pen to paper. Well, of course, he's not talking about his physical death. He's talking about the fact that he is united to Christ. And when Christ died, he participated in that by virtue of his union to Jesus with the Spirit. And if you're a Christian today, you did too. Your old self died. Sin's claim upon you, death's claim upon you has been satisfied in Christ and you have died a very real death. And because of that, the power of sin over you has been broken because Christ died the death that sin required for you. Is that clear? We have to understand that. The Christian life is a matter of our having died. Our old sinful self, been joined to Christ, died with him on the cross. But that's not the only way Paul speaks of our being in union with Christ. He also says says here we were united to Christ, thankfully, in his resurrection. Verses 4 and 5. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we, too, might walk in newness of life. And in verse eight, he says, now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. But again, single out verses nine and ten. Paul says, we know that Christ Being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Well, the Lord Jesus' death was a death in which we participate. But by the same token, his resurrection is a resurrection for us too. Here and now. We died with Him, our old self has died, and we have been raised up to new life, resurrection life with Him. And that makes all the difference. Philippians 3, Paul says it's his desire to share in the power of His resurrection. What does he mean? He means he wants to experience who He is now in the risen Christ. That Christ's resurrection was in a very real sense His own. And it comes with new life and a new power for obedience and holiness. That's true not just for an apostle. It's true for every Christian. It's true for you. It's true for me. So as Paul speaks here of our union with Christ, he's saying we died when Jesus died. We died with him and that his resurrection from the dead was a resurrection for us, too. Now, it is true that there is a more glorious resurrection that awaits us. We will physically die if Christ does not come back first. But with his return, our bodies will be raised up, imperishable, incorruptible. And we will experience the fullness of that resurrection life. But we do very much in principle and in fact enjoy it now. Even though we still live in this present evil age, even though Christ has not come and made all things new as he will one day, you and I as Christians are citizens of the age to come living in this present evil page. That's what Paul can say. You are, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You see, it's so much more than just willpower, so much more than saying, yeah, I'm a Christian. I just got to hunker down and try harder. You have been fundamentally changed. You have been profoundly transformed if you are a follower of Christ, if you are in Christ. Now, does that mean we never struggle with sin again? No, of course not. Your own experience teaches you that. The scriptures teach you that. The fallen nature, though its power is broken, can still seem very strong. Plus, we develop lifelong, or maybe at least long-time, habits. We get into ruts, carve trenches that can be very difficult to get out of, whether it's our behavior or whether it's the, uh, the patterns of our thinking about ourselves and about the world and about God and, and all kinds of things. But the reality is this. In Christ, we have the power to say no to those things. Though their pull on you may be very strong, you have the power to say no to those things. That power has been broken, and you do now have in Christ the power to be obedient to Him. Sin's claim upon you has been broken. Its power has been canceled out. Well, If that's true, this union with Christ that Paul speaks of here, uh, union with him in his death and burial, union with him in his resurrection to new life, well, Paul goes on to speak here that this union with Christ inevitably results in obedience to Christ. And he talks about this in verses 11 through 14. Uh, As we look at these verses, actually one verse apiece, you can see four elements here that are involved in obedience to Christ on this basis, not of our own self-will or self-effort, not on pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps in terms of our sanctification, but rather how do we live now in light of that truth that we have been crucified and raised to new life in Christ? What does genuine Christian obedience, righteousness, holiness look like? Well, four elements of it here as Paul describes it. The first in verse 11 is that of reckoning. Look at verse 11. Paul says, so you also must consider yourselves or reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. If this is true, it means that you see yourself in a new way. You think differently about yourself. Now, notice that Paul does not command us to be dead to sin and alive to God. That's understood. That's presupposed because of what he's already just said, that in Christ, we did die to sin. In Christ, we have been raised to a new life in our in our standing, in our relationship to God. No, he doesn't command us to do it. He says, consider yourself to be in this condition, but also don't misunderstand him. He's not saying that by merely considering it to be so, makes it so. He's talking about a reality. That if you were a Christian, your union with Christ has uh, led you to participate in his death and resurrection. So see yourself that way. Reckon yourself. Consider yourself. Count yourself now to be what you are. Dead to sin. Alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, we're not just playing mind games. This is not just some helpful psychology that if we just think this way, it makes it easier. What makes it happen? No, we're to think this way because it is so. Because it is the new reality for the Christian. You died and been raised to a new life. There is a new principle, new power at work in you. And God has given you his Holy Spirit. You participated in that death and resurrection. Christ suffered and enjoyed. And now you are a new creature and you are to see yourself in that light. So that's what Paul is saying here in the first place. The second element that Paul describes here in this new obedience in Christ is not just reckoning, but refusing. Look at verse 12. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. In verse 12, he says, let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. To make you obey their passions. Do not present yourself to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Well, refusing. Well, as a new creature in Christ, you are in a position now, and you have the power now to challenge sin's efforts in your life. You, Before you became a Christian, sin has its way with you. You are in its power. But now that you're a Christian, sin's power has been broken, and you have the... Ability, you have the opportunity to look at the temptation, to sin, to look at sin and say no. As he says in verse 13 or verse 12, I will not let sin reign anymore. Sin has been dethroned. There is a new king reigning, ruling in my body to make me obey his will, not the passions of sin. You revolt against sin's usurping rule. Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter 2 saying essentially the same thing. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You experience that. The reality of God's grace in you that when you're tempted to say no, I'm no longer under the power of sin. In God's grace I have the I have the, the, the power now to say no to that, refuse to bow to sin's demands. Third uh, element here Paul speaks of is that of redirecting, verse 13, not presenting ourselves to sin, but presenting ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, uh, the, the members of our body, to God as instruments for righteousness. Righteousness. That's in accord with what Paul teaches elsewhere, putting off the old man, putting on the new man. It's not just saying no to one thing. It's saying no to one thing and yes to something else, yes to something better. So redirecting our efforts from serving sin to serving Christ. We have a new master. We dedicate ourselves to his glory. And then the last element here in, in this biblical sanctification righteousness is that of reassurance. Verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Paul knows. In fact, in chapter 7, he goes on to describe his own struggles against that residual fallen nature. It's not easy. This power is real, but the struggle is often not easy. And so Paul gives us this reassurance when the struggle seems hard. Sin does not have dominion over you. It may feel that way at times because we're so used to that. But the fact is, it no longer has power over you. And grace here, the law can't do that. The law only condemns. The law only aggravates our sinfulness. But God's grace, and by that he's just referring to all that God has done for us in Christ, has set us free. We're justified. He is at work to sanctify us. His resurrection life is our resurrection life. And we are now freed from that bondage to live a new life in him. So do you see why, to Paul, the idea that we just go on sinning, that grace may increase, is so repugnant? Or why the Christian life is merely a matter of trying to be good for goodness sake, when there is so much more, so much more richness, so much more depth to it? It's a sin to presume on God's grace. It's dangerous to presume on God's grace. It's also dangerous to try to live the Christian life apart from Christ. See, Many Christians understand Jesus died for their sin, but then they think it's up to them to take it from there and live a holy life. It's true of the Christians in in Galatia, where Paul wrote in Galatians 3, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, having been saved by Christ, are you now pressing forward in your own efforts and your own strength? You see, that kind of Christless self-reliance leads to one of two things. It leads to pride and self-righteousness for those who seem to succeed, or it leads to despair for those who don't, if we're just left to our own efforts. No, we're justified by God's grace in Christ. We're sanctified by God's grace in Christ. We died with him been raised to new life in him, And now, as new creatures in Him, we live in obedience to Him. Perfectly, no. But you see, even our being led to repentance when we sin is an instance of His grace at work in us. So perfectly, no. But perceptibly, yes, there will be change. We work at it. We develop it. We use the means of grace. But if you are in Christ, you will be a different person from the one you once were. You see, the Savior whose birth we celebrate is the Savior who sanctifies, who makes us holy, makes us obedient in our day-to-day living. He sees when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good because you, Christian, have died with Christ and been raised to new life in Him. So obey Him. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that Your power is at work in us. And Father, we pray that by Your grace, we would put sin to death because we are not who we once were. Because Christ has died and we died with Him. The power of sin broken, the guilt of sin forgiven, the stain of sin removed. And because we have been raised with Christ, citizens of heaven, creatures of the age to come. And so, Father, I pray that as we reckon ourselves dead to sin, and alive to God, that reality would be seen more and more in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.